and gentlemen, welcome to episode 215 of the 1099. As always, I'm your host, Joseph Noop, and I'm so glad you're here with us. And I'm glad to have the man of many verticals, a former Variety video games editor and author of Good Game Well Played, Mr. Brian Crescente. Brian, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. And you know, uh, it's it's funny. I I know for sure I have not worked with you as much as nearly uh, many of my peers have, but uh, it, it's undeniable that you have uh, had a lot of experience in games media, both starting and working within a lot of different game media companies. And that's honestly what we're here to talk about today is uh, what the process is of fundraising and starting a new uh, media startup. Uh, and before we dive into that, uh, tell me a little bit about your background experience. You were a, a founder of Kotaku, of, of Polygon. You helped establish Rolling Stones, uh, Glixel, and you also established Variety's gaming vertical. Um, give me give me the, the two-minute kind of uh, drunken history recap of that. I wish I could give you the drunken history recap. That'd be great. <laughs> that, that means I'd be drunk, but it is before noon, so that's probably a bad idea. Oh, uh, it's five uh, o'clock somewhere. Yes, that's true. And probably when people are listening to this, maybe it's it's drinking time. Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, but before, uh, some people know this, but before I got into covering video games, I covered uh, police and public safety for a variety of newspapers uh, over the course of about 15 years. Um, and then got into covering video games uh, back in 2000 and uh, probably 2002 uh, is when I started, actually started as a freelancer. Actually, if you were to go all the way back, it was 98. Uh, Good but Lord. I started doing it, yeah, <laughs> a long time ago. Uh, but uh, GameZilla, I don't know, have you ever heard of GameZilla? I think I have, yeah. Or Geek, I think Geek's still around. Uh, so I did some work for them. But uh, yeah, it, my my sort of more known history uh, started in 2004. I actually started running Kotaku about a month after it launched. Uh, it wasn't doing well. Gawker Media reached out to me to see if I wanted to take over the site. Uh, it was at about 10,000 readership and uh, falling. Uh, and they gave me a month or two to reverse that. And uh, I ended up spending seven years there. Uh, Really enjoyed, uh, it started out just being myself, uh, ended up building up a team, really talented folks, many of whom are still there, including uh, Stephen Totillo, who's now running things. Uh, when I left, it was, I, I don't know, close to like 10 million, I think, uh, readership. Um, and then I moved over to uh, work with Chris Grant and a bunch of other folks, uh, different editors to help create Polygon, which is also obviously very much still around. Um, and I worked there for about five and a half years before um, Rolling Stone came calling. Um, and it, as a journalist, at least in my opinion, it's really hard, uh, especially if you're in a space where you're kind of looking around about what your next step is. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to say no to Rolling Stone um, because, you know, it's Rolling Stone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, they had actually already launched Glixel uh, and uh, it... Uh, they decided to sort of do a reboot of how they had launched. It was initially launched with a group of people in San Francisco. They shuttered that entire operation, moved it in-house into New York, uh, hired me. Uh, and at that point, I was working uh, just – it was just myself. And then I had freelance staff, um, including folks like uh, Stephanie, Stephanie Fogel, who followed me over to Variety, and Liz Taylor um, – 
suddenly feel like I, that's not her last name. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, sorry, my memory's terrible sometimes. No, mine too. Uh, so yeah, so I worked at uh, I worked at Rolling Stone. Uh, they were bought out by um, PMC Penske Media Corporation, and Jay Penske, who is the owner founder of that group, had a sit down with me, and, and we discussed over actually it was like an hour or two conversation. Uh, the importance of video game coverage and how much he thinks it needs, how, how important it is that it be covered uh, and uh, talk me into moving from Rolling Stone to Variety uh, to essentially create a vertical at Variety. Um, so for those of you unfamiliar uh, with the terminology, a vertical is essentially um, a section. If you were to think of a newspaper, it's a section in a online publication. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Variety has music and they have television and movies. And uh, so when I met with the editors there, uh, we discussed what that would look like. And one thing that I was pretty uh, adamant about and passionate about was that game coverage at Variety would not be in service to those other verticals. Um, and what I mean by that was I, I didn't want to go in and cover video games when they intersected with movies or with music or with TV only. Um, I wanted to cover video games at Variety uh, the way they should be covered, in my opinion, which is as their own important and powerful form of expression and medium that's right up there with music, right up there with movies and television. Um, and so they agreed. They were completely behind the idea. Uh, and so in uh, 2018, I uh, started there. And again, it was just myself and freelancers. Uh, and I ended up working there about a year, a little over a year before they decided to go a different direction and shut down uh, at least my uh, form of gaming coverage over there. And I know that uh, speaking from like a, a industry worker perspective, a lot of us were kind of disheartened and it, it was it was a very similar cycle, but perhaps surprising to have happened that fast after Variety uh did really well, it felt like. Um, I remember reading or seeing somewhere or maybe discussing it with someone in the know that uh, Variety's gaming vertical was one of the more well-trafficked uh, sites for you know that kind of st style of gaming content. And uh, where a year after you started that, and you obviously you have a family to think about and, and general finances to think about, uh, where was your headspace in that moment um, when Variety said we're going in a different direction and like once again you had to uh, uh, start anew? Well, I uh, it, it would be wrong for me to say I wasn't surprised, um, but it wasn't that I was surprised that they had made that decision. I was more surprised at the timing. Mm -hmm. uh, the timing. I, so. I was, I think the announcement, or they told me in, uh, I, I'm kind of going from memory here. I think it was in May. Um, and those of you who follow video games or, or work in the industry realize that that's reading, leading right into the heart of the busiest time of year. Um, and so initially it was, there was talk of it being immediate. Um, and I mentioned that, you know, I'd already started scheduling E3. And so they asked if I wanted to stay on to cover E3. Um, but yeah, I, I had gotten a sense that perhaps it wasn't the perfect fit that um, I had hoped and perhaps they had hoped it would be. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's, I have to say, I, I can't talk in a lot of detail about, mm -hmm. about the reasoning. Uh, first off, it's because I, you know, I don't really know the reasoning. I just know that they decided to, to that it wasn't working out for them. Um, 
but uh yeah i i feel like um you know it, it was disappointing it was uh a bummer because you know i i have the uh opportunity to work at other places um and the reason i took the job at rolling stone and then the job at friday was for a very specific thing you know i i feel it's important that mainstream publications cover video games and um there's still for some reason this um conversation this uh discussion going on about whether it's worth covering uh which is crazy to me like uh, you know, you would think by the time that you have folks like Ninja having the impact he has mm-hmm. on everything and showing up in, in, you know, places like, um, Ellen, or when you have these massive esports um, uh, competitions happening that are attracting so much attention, $3 million so for the Fortnite world cup winner, a 16 year old. Yeah. 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 And, and not even the, the money, it's the attention, like people watch esports more than they watch sports mm-hmm. uh i'm making that number up but i feel like that's probably true probably true <laughs> it is for me <laughs> but uh yeah so you know i i specifically rolling stone and variety i wanted my goal wasn't to go there and have that be my forever job like my goal was to go there build something hand it off to somebody and then move on um and it's a bummer that that didn't happen uh i I get rolling stone they you know they were sort of sort of did a reboot over there and that made a lot of sense but with variety i really wish it could have lasted longer and could have lived on past me they still cover games but um i did note or i haven't checked recently but at least last time i checked they had removed uh gaming from their front page um and uh, you know, it's, it's not getting the coverage it used to, mm-hmm. at least when I was there. So yeah, it's, it's a bummer. So that brings us to the the major question here of the of fundraising for a new media startup and kind of the journey that you've been going on recently. Um, you are, uh, as I understand it, of course, attempting to, uh, start a new and perhaps build your own kind of, uh, site once again. Uh, tell me what. Tell me about the initial decision to go with a new startup, and uh, what are the questions you're asking yourself uh, most early on in the process. Uh, so this is something uh, I think a lot of people want to do their own thing. They want to have ownership of the thing they're creating, um, and I, I, I don't regret any of the work I did in building up previous sites, but I never had ownership. Uh, a lot of people, for instance, thought I was the owner of Kotaku. I was a guy who was brought in to run Kotaku mm-hmm. and build it up, but I never had any ownership. Um, and that's fine. Um, but I think at some point uh, in your life, if, if it's something you want to do, if you know creating your own thing is something you want to do, uh, there has to be a moment where you just take the plunge or, or just bury the idea. Um, and so when I was at Polygon in my final, uh, I'd say year or so, uh, they, I'd been promoted to executive editor and Chris, uh, Chris Grant had given me the ability to essentially do whatever I wanted, which was awesome. And, uh, I'm really, uh, grateful that he did that. I was able to write this, what I think was a really fascinating package on, uh, uh, all aspects of gaming in Cuba. And I did a couple other stories that I've been wanting to work on for a long time. Uh, but as I was doing that and sort of wrapping up those stories, I was getting this sort of uh, urge to go create something new again. Um, and I, I just uh, call it stubbornness or maybe stupidity, but 
I had just told myself, if I ever do it again after Polygon, it's not going to be for someone mm -hmm. else. Um, and then I ignored that twice, both with Rolling Stone and Variety. Um, and so I had already d decided with Variety that, you know, I, I expected in my mind, I thought I'd be there maybe three years. Uh, I was there for a little less than half of that. But I knew that once that wrapped up, I was going to go ahead and try uh, to do my own thing. And, you know, uh, doesn't mean it's going to succeed, but a, I think I would always regret it if I didn't at least try to do this thing. Um, and so um, it, that provided an opportunity uh, is a nice way of putting it <laughs> to, to, to try, uh, try doing this. Uh, I met with a bunch of folks, talked to a bunch of folks. Uh, uh, one thing I can't understate is uh, just how very, um, oh, I don't know the right word, supportive, I guess, everybody has been. When I announced I was leaving Variety, I got so many nice messages from people publicly and privately mm -hmm. asking, you know, if I was okay and if there was anything they could do for me, what, what I wanted to do next. Uh, and that was encouraging. Um, among those people, were some folks who were like, and this happened every time that I left somewhere, who were like, you know, you got to do your own thing. Um, and so uh, one of those people, uh, I, I don't want to sort of get into the specifics of naming the people I'm working with right mm -hmm. now, but one of those people was someone who does financing and, and kind of puts deals together. And uh, we, had a, we had a conversation, like an hour-long conversation, where he talked me through the ins and outs of different sorts of investing, uh, venture capitalists and angel investing um and what he thinks would and wouldn't work and uh after we chatted i think like a week later he emailed me and said I, you know i think you should do this and i want to be the person who helps put you put this together for you um and so we started the process um and it's kind of like imagine if uh have you ever built a car from scratch joseph <laughs> God, no. Uh, the, you know anything about I, building cars? <laughs> not a damn thing. Although I, I will say uh, we, we are similar in one way. Um, it's not entirely comparable, but I, I did start my own uh, games media website in college uh, with actually the help of like the fellow college students. And it's actually part of the college's media curriculum over at Ball State in Indiana. Um, and you, you were joking around earlier about you know stubbornness. Uh, and certainly I needed a lot of that when I was trying to convince, um, the powers that be who were, you know, easily 30 or 40 years older than me at the time, uh, why, why games, media industry or culture, what have you is, is worth covering and is worth giving students a platform to, uh, do so over the course of a year, I have told the story before on the podcast, but like over the course of a year, I, I managed to build that from me and one classmate to me and like 20 staff members uh, uh, of varying ages and, and qualities. But it, uh, I, I feel you on that front for sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So I, you know, at, at, at Variety and Rolling Stone, I started from scratch. Uh, at Kotaku, <coughs> excuse me, at Kotaku, I essentially started from scratch. The site was up, but it was just me. Um, and so over time, did that sort of building up that you're alluding to when you talk about what you did at Ball State. Um, and then at Polygon, it was a very different thing where a bunch of people were hired, each with their own ex expertise, and we each focused on our own thing. And 
essentially Polygon came into the world fully formed, which was exciting and stressful in a different sort of way, but uh, very different than what I'm doing now. What I'm doing now is like me saying, oh man, I love driving cars. And you know what? I'm pretty good at driving cars. I can drive cars really well. And then mm -hmm. saying, okay, I'm going to build a car. And you're like, oh, actually, I have no idea how to build a car. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, so it's a bit of an exaggeration, but um, I, it, it's interesting. I've learned a lot over the course of, uh, gosh, how long has it been? Uh, I guess two months. Um, figuring out, like I knew the basics. I, you know, I know the ins and outs of running uh, a publication and I know uh, how much it costs and I know payroll and I know all that stuff, uh, travel expenses, covering conventions, all that stuff. Uh, what I was a little weak on, and I knew this was for instance, uh, the cost of, uh, you know, cost of hosting isn't that hard, but like the cost of, um, finding someone who's going to do design work or branding and, uh, finding a distinct URL and going through the process of vetting that and, uh, either buying it or if, if, lightning strikes twice, actually uh, finding a URL that nobody owns that has value, which is almost impossible these days. Yeah. Uh, and like doing all that stuff. And then like, that was just the, you know, I'm like, all right, whew, done. And I sent it to the finance guy and he's like, all right, this is a great start, <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> as an editor, I know what that means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like try again. Um, and so, yeah, you know, putting together a pitch deck, uh, we ended up putting together, I think it's like a 10-page pitch deck, and you're doing uh, cost analysis, and you're doing burn rates, and you're trying to figure out, like, it, it, it's really interesting. I, I actually, a long time ago, was studying business, a very long time ago. So it was sort of scratching that itch. Uh, and it is fascinating because it's very tactical, but like figuring out, okay, this is how much everything costs, but when I roll it out, obviously your expenses go up every month, and you know, how is that going to equate or how is that going to be offset by your increase in traffic and income? And it's really fascinating, but you have to, you know, when you want an investor, you can't just be like, trust me, I, you know, I got this. So they, mm -hmm. they want you to have estimates for, you know, not just how you're going to operate, what the site's going to do, how it's going to cover things, how it's going to be different and distinct, but like, okay, in your seventh month, how much traffic are you going to have? How much will you be spending on payroll? What will your taxes be? Um, you know, what is your, what is your um, domain cost, uh, your hosting costs? They want everything. Um, and so that takes a lot longer than uh, you might expect uh, to put all that together, uh, put all of that, excuse me, together. Um, so yeah, it, it's been, it's been really fun uh, in the sense that I've uh, learned even more about uh, sort of the back end of building up a site and the ongoing costs, which I've always been sort of curious about. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, it's, I feel like there are a lot of people who have been in these shoes, the shoes of wanting to do your own thing and knowing that it, you're at a point where it's like now or never. Um, and, and that's where I am, I feel like. Certainly. And it, 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 it only benefits, I suppose, the, the broader, uh, media community to have a conversation like this to say like, no, you, the, the thing that you're going through right now is pretty normal, even if it does feel daunting and scary. Um, the So you mentioned a lot of the uh, 
the conversations you had with like an investor and it sounds it sounds like for the most part you were talking to money people who at least like got what you were going for um even if they had to tackle the the issues much more directly and then much more you know seriously of like yeah what's your what are your what's your tax rate going to be uh what kind of profit are you going to bring in uh tell me tell me a little bit more about that like what what are the sorts of conversations happening um when you've got someone who's motivated by the profits rather than the um the i suppose artistic vision of the site it sounds like for the most part you had a pretty positive experience but i know that can't always be the case uh when you're talking uh money and big business right yeah it is um i think there's a lot of uh blood and sweat that goes into this process but you can't leave out the tears <laughs> Yeah. So far, so far, they've just been uh, metaphysical tears. <laughs> they're not, they're not actually real tears. But uh, it is emotionally daunting in a way uh, that is surprising. Um, you, one thing I think I didn't expect was that. Uh, first off, uh, to back up a little bit, the process—it's it, essentially—it's a numbers game. Mm -hmm. You're not. It, it's unlikely that if you're trying to do this, that you're going to go out. And you're going to find three investors and they're going to say, yes, we want to do this and give you the money. It's more like you're going to go out to 200 people and then, you know, maybe a hundred of them will say, re re you know, respond to your email. And then maybe 50 of those will say they want a little more info. And then maybe 25 of those will want your pitch deck. And then maybe 10 of those will talk to you. And then maybe one will say yes. Um, and all of those no's um, aren't always kind. <laughs> they're not. Yeah. They're not always like, oh man, you're awesome. We love you. You're the best person ever. This is going to succeed, but we don't want to invest. <laughs> Some of them are really daunting. And, and so you have to be, you have to go into this. Sorry, you know, call. No, no worries. Uh, you have to go into this uh, just being fully aware that this is like, it's, it's completely, depending on how you do it, obviously with me, it's, it's myself and I have someone helping me. But essentially for me, it's completely me. It's not like, you know, if I fail, I can sort of uh, commiserate with the other people who failed with me. And if I if I don't fail, I can sort of celebrate with a bunch of people. If I fail, I fail. And if I succeed, I succeed. And then hopefully that'll become something bigger. Uh, but yeah, so so yeah, it's a numbers thing. So you're having a lot of these calls. You're having a lot of these conversations. Um, probably a lot of people know this, but the two type of, types of investors, venture and angel, a venture, cap uh, venture capitalist is somebody who has a whole lot of money and they're essentially playing craps or they're playing mm -hmm. roulette. Like they know nine times out of 10 that whatever they invest in is going to be lost. Um, and, and that's why you see so many, uh, so many like app companies of like, we'll walk your dog or something like that. And right. one of those companies is actually going to like make enough profit long-term to stick around. Yeah. Right. And that's the flip side. Like they, they know they're going to have nine failures, but that means their 10th fail, uh, their 10th thing that they invest in has to be not just successful, but really successful. And when I yeah. say that, I mean, 100 times return of profit successful, um, not and this isn't true for all uh venture capitalists but they expect a really big return on their money um and some of them do and that means that you know all the other things that you're having to deal with as someone trying to raise money 
one of the issues you run into, or at least I've been running into is um, it's like small potatoes for them. They're like, you know, oh, great. This will be profitable. Yeah. But you know, that's not good enough for us. It needs to, we want a billion dollars and it's like, mm -hmm. well, okay, I shouldn't be talking to you then. <laughs> I too want a billion dollars, but I'm not the guy to do that for you. <laughs> no. um, so, and then you, the other, the flip side of that, and, and again, there's, there's a range. There are people who aren't, uh, I think that capitalistic in their approach. Um, but then there are those uh, angel investors who are essentially individuals who have money, who want to uh, invest and yes, they want to see some profit, but they also are investing because they have some personal interest in supporting what you're doing. And that a philanthropist, maybe a yeah. philanthropist. Uh, yeah, yeah, or somebody like, for instance, somebody who uh, follows the games industry and feels like it needs more coverage. Like that's a really good example. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that you know they run a studio or they're they're in some way going to be directly uh, getting some sort of quid pro quo from it. They just want the idea. It's like the idea of like a rising tide lifts all boats. They they mm -hmm. want more media out there because they know that's good for the industry as a whole. I think um, you uh, I think you see a lot of that out there currently of like esports companies um, uh, supporting in various ways uh, esports games media sites and that that ex itself is of course a, a great example of uh, rising tide lifts all boats. Right, exactly. Um, and so uh, you, I, it's funny. I've completely forgotten what your initial question was because I got so completely off the topic. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. Um, it, generally, just uh, talk talking about. Uh, yeah, I think I think you answered it pretty fully. How about we we move on to? Um, you mentioned a pitch, and you talk about it initially through the lens of an investor. Uh, what? But to you, like from the person trying to make this new media startup happen, what, is, what does a pitch deck look like and how are you organizing it? And what sorts of things are you generally trying to communicate with it? So a pitch deck, uh, the idea of a pitch deck is think of it as like a PowerPoint. And I know that's a terrible analogy because everybody hates PowerPoints. Right. Um, but you want to try to get across uh, the notion of who you are, what it is you want to achieve, how you're different than the competition and who the competition is, um, the cost and um, income, and then sort of what your end goal is for creating this publication or whatever it is you happen to be doing. Um, so in the case of what I'm doing, um, like I'm not, it would be so easy if I, if I came in and said, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to create a publication that does this thing that nobody has ever done before. Um, and nobody does it. And if I do it, we'll be the only ones doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think the reality is, and I'm, I'm, in my mind, at least, I'm very much a realist when it comes to this sort of thing. There, while there are a lot of things that I hope to do that are different and interesting with a publication, if I can get one off the ground, um, none of them reinvent the wheel. Uh, and, and, you know, Maybe I'm too blunt. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that. But uh, I, I think you don't need to reinvent the wheel when there's still not, I, in my mind, a whole bunch of, you know, there, there are a handful of really good gaming sites out there, but there aren't enough, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think until we get to that point, people shouldn't be trying to reinvent the wheel. They should just be using wheels. 
Is that does that make sense? Doing doing the job as best as they can. Yeah, uh, there's there is no shortage of small tier uh, games coverage websites, but they're all do they're unfortunately either because of a lack of manpower or experience or pay, uh, they aren't able to achieve what something like a, a Kotaku or a Polygon or an IGN does day in and day out, relatively reliably, of course. Uh, and we need more of those mid to large size things because that's how you establish a, a trusted brand, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the reality is that there are essentially five big sites out there. I, I'm mostly thinking North America because those are the sort of stats right. that I can see. Uh, there are really five big sites out there and then it sort of falls off a bridge. There's like mm -hmm. the next sites, there's like this massive gap. And the reason that is, is because you you have um, just a, uh, well, I, th I don't think there's one individual reason, but there are a slew of reasons, uh, a lack of experience, a lack of money, a lack of uh, management. There are a lot of reasons that sites don't ever get above that sort of small tier level. Um, and I think that, that it has left open this huge door, uh, through which, uh, a site like what I'm envisioning can walk through. Um, the, the one of the big things I want to do that, uh, um, I think is sort of a product of its time. And this sounds so simple is create a gaming site that just covers games. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying this because I think it's wrong to cover other forms of entertainment on a gaming site. Uh, I it would be very hypocritical of me to say that because <laughs> I've been involved in two sites that did that. And uh, in one case, I was the one that got us to do that, Kotaku. I, I expanded our coverage um, to, you know, beyond just video games. Polygon is fantastic at covering all forms of entertainment. And I think that's great. And IGN does a great job of that. And a lot of, uh, a lot of internet coverage too, like internet culture coverage as well. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, I, and I think those all are great examples of things that should be covered. But what's changed since Kotaku launched and since Polygon launched and since IGN and GameSpot is that we are now, I, I honestly believe we are at that turning point where you can have a website that just covers or any publication that just covers games and and be inundated with things that they need to cover. Mm -hmm. There's not enough time or or manpower to cover everything in games because uh, or personnel because the reality is that games touch on everything. Um, you you can easily you could today create I think a profitable esports publication and just do that. But that's sports. That's just sports. So you you have features. You have news. You have business. You have sports. You have opinion. Um, and the fact that there are so many intersections now with so many different forms of entertainment and other uh, parts of life. Uh, I, I just, it surprises me that there's not a time magazine or a wired or a rolling stone of video games. And that's what I want to create. Uh, and, and obviously that's a little um, pompous <laughs> sounding because, <laughs> you know, I don't know if I'll be able to create that, but I think that needs to happen. That needs to exist. And I don't think it exists right now. I, I love Eurogamer. I think they do a great job. Um, and if they were in North America, I might feel a little less like that were the case, but they are Eurocentric. Um, Edge is fantastic, mm -hmm. but they're print. Um, I think that there is a great possibility there in creating something that is 
video games only uh, and covering it also not just for gamers, but covering it for everybody. Because the reality is, statistically speaking, everybody plays games. Mm -hmm. You can you can quibble over what a game is and what that really means. But I think it's fair to say we're at a point where everybody plays games. You uh, you, you raise a really interesting point too about the yeah the dichotomy between uh, a site like IGN or GameSpot, maybe the the two big uh, dogs in this fight will will do well. It's summer right now, so IGN is like seventy five percent entertainment coverage. I would know. I'm the weekend web producer, and I have to kind of promote all of it on the front page. And I and I see a lot of the comments that are like, "Man, I just wish IGN would you know do more games coverage." And it's like, well, it's not quite the season for that yet. And so you raise the cool point of wanting to kind of cut that in half and really focus hard on games coverage because it's a uh, games industry because it's that important. Um, and, and you can make a, you can ostensibly make a profitable venture off of that. So have you in the process, have you learned any big differences between growing a media startup, uh, that focuses on both sides of the industry, entertainment and gaming, uh, versus this singular approach? Uh, what, what are the big differences between the two when it comes to pitching that to an investor and building that pitch deck and saying, here's why going super exclusive on this matters uh it, you know it's interesting i actually in my mind saw that as a challenge and that it was going to be something where i had to explain it to potential investors mm -hmm. and kind of walk them through it and in fact uh it isn't it's it's a differentiator uh where people are like yeah yeah i could see the importance of that but there hasn't been a single meeting i've had with people who where someone has said well do you know do video games really deserve this sort of coverage um so uh, I, I was very surprised to find that. It's like you go in, like I go in loaded up for that argument and it's like, oh, the door is open. Like, never mind. I don't, I don't have to tell you any of this because they know it all. Um, so that's fantastic. Uh, and again, I was a little surprised, but I think um, investors tend to stay ahead of the curve. Uh, and if they're looking at investing in a particular uh, area or topic, they get they get sort of what's going on and where things are headed. And, you know, part of my pitch, uh, without going into a lot of detail, part of my pitch is that in my mind, in the next five years or so, we're going to see a bunch of mainstream companies suddenly waking up to the fact that not only is video games an important, relevant um, topic that needs to be covered and should be covered in its own publication, but that they're not doing any gaming coverage. Mm. Uh, and we're already seeing a little bit of that. Washington Post has announced that they're hiring some mm -hmm. folks. Um, I, uh, I can imagine that they're the first of what will be many newspapers that start to come back to this. Uh, as someone who is directly involved in newspaper coverage of video games for a while, uh, it's about effing time, yeah. <laughs> as my son said. It's crazy that newspapers are finally like, oh yeah, let's let's cover video games. Obviously, USA Today has been doing a great job, uh, and there's some others. Uh, LA Times does a great job, but um, yeah, we're going to start seeing this. And um, in my mind, being a person who is sort of creating that now, uh, this is sort of going into inside baseball. But when you're an investor, you're looking at how do I get my money back out mm -hmm. of this? And in my mind, that means that maybe in five years I end up selling what I've created to Condé Nast or to PMC or to New York Times um, 
I've suddenly forgotten the name of the company. Um, but the New York Times yeah, company. Yeah. Um, I like maybe not, but I I do think that they're all going to start realizing they need they need gaming coverage or their own gaming publications. I uh, it, it's funny you mentioned Washington Post because I interviewed Mr. Gene Park a couple episodes back. Uh, he's their audience editor, which, as I understand, it means a lot of like social media and Reddit and community outreach kind of stuff. But he was able to write about of all things uh, Netflix's Evangelion uh you know uh when it came out about a month ago and they they had the redub and everything and here i am talking with a a washington post editor lives in dc and everything uh and he himself kind of came from a a background similar to yours a lot of like civic reporting uh talking about anime and how it like helped him grow up and helped him get through you know the the emotionally traumatic parts of his youth uh and what we can learn from it as adults now i'm having that conversation with a washington post editor uh and he himself got to write two or three articles about it that got featured on the website so yeah there is there is this very small awakening it feels like from time to time um i know uh nicole carpenter uh wrote for washington post a couple of times about that as well about games media stuff. Yeah, and you know, it, it's worth noting as well, um, when I when I was at Kotaku, I used to talk about the day that would come, uh, and this was, uh, gosh, when was this? This was like, I forgot when it was, 2007? Mm-hmm. Like 12 years ago? Uh, I used to talk about how one day, no, 2004, good Lord, uh, 15 years ago, <laughs> how one day, we would be a uh, a country or a world of generational gamers, people who grew up playing mm-hmm. games. Um, I feel like in many ways, my generation, I was born in 1970. Uh, my generation was the generation that sort of first had a chance to grow up gaming. Uh, there were games that came out before 70, but you know, that era is when you started having consoles mm-hmm. and homes and things were affordable. Uh, but yeah, we're getting to that point now where the people in charge... Uh, are growing up playing games and that obviously shapes not only their knowledge of video games but their understanding and and more importantly uh i don't think they view it like uh some people used to some of the older generations viewed it as either a waste of time or something dangerous like they get it that conversation doesn't happen as much despite what uh you know our president may have said recently (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> see a lot of game developers talking about kind of a similar thing too, where um, it used to be a, a decade or two ago, they were being taught by instructors who didn't necessarily always have games in their life. But now with the last five years or so, I, I, I started going to GDC back in 2015. Um, I saw a lot of students talking about how their instructors were finally the ones who had like grown up with a controller in their hand, uh, even if it was like a, you know, an NES or something or even earlier. Uh, and that has influenced the way that they've uh, designed their games and talked about games and, and the missions and strategies that they've developed when they you know, talk about building their own kind of business and everything. And yeah, you're, you're right. We're, we're starting to enter a new generation where everyone of of the readership has had a controller in their hand for a vast majority of their life yeah it's uh it's it's certainly having an impact on things in a way that i think uh are both subtle and very mm-hmm. obvious um in different directions obviously you uh we talk about 
a lot of, well, how do you get started kind of questions. And, and certainly we're not the first kind of people to talk about um, building up a company like this. Uh, but how do you set yourself up for long-term success? Uh, obviously, it's a big cause of celebration to land a deal and uh, you know get the office and start up day one. But what kinds of things are you talking to your uh, to a team about or to investors about that says, "Here's my two, five, ten year plan"? Yeah, so um, it's important that you create something that can survive its birth. Is maybe the best way of putting it. Yeah. Um, you you know it takes a while. It's it's you're not going to launch a site and immediately be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in the funding I'm looking for, I'm trying to build out uh, a one year runway. So that means literally not make a penny for a year and not run out of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know I I should have said from a get from the get go I have not gotten my funding yet. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I still don't know if this will happen. Uh, I have I have set a deadline for myself and for my financial person because I am not independently wealthy and at some point do need to go get a job <laughs> if, if this doesn't work out. Um, but uh, yeah, so I I if I do this, I want to make sure that I have enough time to do it right. Uh, my experience has been about nine months is what I need to get a site up and going and doing quite well. Uh, so giving myself a year is more than enough time. Um, and, and that's sort of the the core idea. And then you build off of that. Um, I have a lot of ideas that I've had for a long time about ways to expand a site beyond the sort of formative launch year uh, or launch years. Uh, but in my mind, um, those like the further out you get, the sort of rougher the draft should be because you have to be very nimble. Uh, when it comes to your approach and God knows, you know, when the next Fortnite launches and mm-hmm. suddenly everybody's covering things in a very different way. So you have to be ready to respond to that and handle that sort of stuff. I know that all too well. My, my Tuesdays are all Fortnite these days. So, yes. uh, and, and we talk about, uh, you have a family, uh, and a, and a kid and, I, I, I'm younger and I have a partner who thankfully is in the same space. We both work in games, so uh, they're able to understand a lot of the grind uh, of being a freelancer or a full-timer or a part-timer. Uh, what, what are the most emotionally taxing parts of this process? I imagine you, you've got to be in a pretty unique and precarious situation knowing that like, yeah, you, it, it is interesting to hear that you've set a deadline for yourself because in my position, I feel like I wouldn't be so brave as to do that because I would just be like, well, what else am I going to do? I'm a freelancer, but you have a very different context. What are the, what are the emotionally taxing parts of that context, I suppose? Well, I, I haven't had any panic attacks yet, so that's Thank good. goodness. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, so when all this started, uh, I would, whenever I was talking to people, like when, when I was at E3 and people would ask about it, I would say... I'm giving myself until August before I start panicking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in August, I was like, well, there's, it doesn't make any sense to panic. Not to say you obviously have total control over your own thoughts sometimes. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, it, it's, it's very stressful. Um, it's, it's like freelancing to some degree in that 
you're sending out a lot of pinch pitches and probably getting back uh, a lot of rejections uh, in hopes of landing that one that you really want. Um, it, it reminds me of when I graduated college a very long time ago, I applied to uh, one newspaper in every state in the country. Uh, now, this was back when you had to mail in your physically mail in your applications. <laughs> I I did I mailed in my Game Informer internship application, thinking that would set me apart. <laughs> oh, nice! Did it? Did they ever see it? <laughs> uh, like, no. I, I I got turned away the first time, and thank God I got accepted the second time oh, nice. I applied. Although I think that was strictly an email. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I I had to mail off my things. Uh, ma- mailed off like uh, I I sent out some to I think it was Australia as well. Uh, so I think I mailed out like sixty applications. Uh, thinking this is this is a, a good approach. What I hadn't factored in was the emotional impact having a rejection letter show up in your mailbox every day for two months has on you. <laughs> every day, every day I'd get a letter. I literally every single newspaper rejected me. Um, some were kind, some were not. Uh, things worked out. In fact, several of those newspapers went on to hire me. Uh, several of those newspapers, I ended up telling them I didn't want to work for them down the line when they were re- trying to recruit me. Um, but that was when I was a police reporter. Uh, but the, the point I'm making is that, uh, it's like that, like you may think you have a thick skin, but it's, it's, you know, it, it gets to everybody. I think, uh, Mm -hmm. when you know that you're going to have a lot of rejections or it's not even the rejections, just silence, which is almost scarier sometimes. Um, and yeah, you just have to, uh, rely on yourself and your friends and your family to sort of emotionally support you because, you know, it's, it's, uh, creating something that you care a lot about and relying on other people entirely to fund it, uh, which I know I just explained Patreon, uh, and other things, but it (laughs) is emotional in a way that a lot of things are not because there's a very deep sense of, or could be a very deep sense of rejection when someone says, no, it's not good enough. Um, and so, yeah, you just have to, I've, I think I've done a pretty good job of, uh, keeping my head up and, uh, you know, I, I feel very lucky in a lot of things in in the way I got the job at Kotaku, the timing of that and the successes there and being able to work with the folks at Polygon and, and Variety and Rolling Stone, that's all been fantastic. And so in my mind, if I, if this doesn't happen, like I'm probably, I'm probably, it's probably time for me to have a, a loss. So that's what happens. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I try not to dwell on it until my deadline hits and then I'm going to figure out what else I'll do if I don't do this. You, uh, you also have a family too. And if I may ask, like, what, what kinds of things do you have to consider when you're thinking about the way success or failure might impact them? Uh, a lot of my colleagues have a kid or two, um, spouses and, shockingly enough to me, they are able to balance a like a part-time games media job or some sort of permalance and then freelancing pitching elsewhere. Uh, and, and it all shocks me because I'm like, I don't know how you sustain like giving your kids school and food and, and, you know, giving your spouse the support that they deserve and not having it crumble beneath you. Cause I have a hard enough time uh, just moving out to LA and keeping myself afloat. Right. So since you have a family, what kinds of things do you need to think about for them uh, in, in that regard? 
Yeah, so um, that uh, that's the thing that weighs heavy, heaviest on my mind. Um, if it was just me, uh, if I were younger or if it was just me and I was my current age, I, I probably wouldn't set a deadline. You know, I would just say, you know, whatever, I'll just figure it out. But I can't do that. My my son, Tristan, I'm very proud to say he's going off to college. Actually, we're leaving uh, this weekend to take him to Aww. college, to his dorm, uh, which is super cool. Uh, he's studying game development, by the way, uh, and, oh, wow. and he's going to be on the esports team there. What a different world we live in today! <laughs> yeah, holy cow! Wow, college esports covering uh, uh, or uh, studying video game development at a university. Um, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, there's that, and then obviously, you know, I have I have the house, I have a mortgage, I've got all these bills that you know aren't bills I can just stop paying. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, before I went down this road, I had a conversation with my wife and my son about it and, you know, explained, uh, what I was wanting to do there. They've both been very supportive. My whole family, my, my parents have been very supportive. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to balance my desire to do this and give my chance, uh, my, I'm sorry, give myself a real chance at doing this with the reality of, you know, not waiting too long so that I can pay the bills. So there's mm-hmm. this sort of balancing act. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that's where the deadline comes from. But so far, uh, like I said, everybody's been very supportive. I've kept, you know, my family, obviously I keep up to date all the time about what's going on and whether, you know, I think it's going to happen. Um, and we just sort of get through each day. Seems like that deadline is not only, of course, a, a logistical deadline, but a matter of respect for your family too. Uh, saying like, hey, I, I love you and respect you enough to say, if this crazy idea I have doesn't work out, I'm not going to throw you to the wolves just for my own uh, uh, wants, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would never, as much as I want to do this, uh, if I had to choose between doing, you know, doing something that I've I've wanted to do like this for a long time, or taking care of my family, there's there's no discussion. Like I, I would obviously take care of my family, and um, mm. you know, it, that's just the reality uh, of of at least I'm sure a lot of people's situations. I am I am lucky enough that um, fortune and coincidence and maybe some hard work has afforded me the opportunity to to try to achieve this, which is more than I think a lot of people can say. And Mm. so I'm trying. And that's all you can ask. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the state of freelancing. And it's definitely played a role in Rolling Stone's Glixel and Variety. Um, I know at least for a while there, it was you and if I I remember the name correctly, John Davidson, right? At Rolling Stone. Well, so Um, John predates me. He was- Predates you. Right. He was the one running Glixel in San Francisco. And right. then, uh, yeah, then it was me. And, uh, and so freelancers played a huge role in the success that Rolling Stone and Variety had uh, with their respective gaming verticals. Uh, what role do they play as you begin to build something up like this? What kinds of things are you trying to consider? And I suppose also we talk about about investors and business leaders uh how do you convince them that, hey, I can build something successful off the back of, uh, with the support of people who you're probably never actually going to meet in person? 
Nice catch. <laughs> well, I mean, and it is off the back of. I mean, that's true. It's uh, I you know I know firsthand how hard it is to do this. Um, so I there's some things I've done in in building out my deck and in building out my approach. Uh, it is going to rely very heavily early on on freelance, but I don't think uh, uh, I I don't see. I don't think it's right to build a site off uh, on the backs of freelancers and then just abandon them. Um, and there is a reality there that you, you, you know, you have to do some things, but there's also the fact that, you know, there are ways to do, to handle and treat freelancers and be more ethical about it. Um, I feel like the pay, I, I have a lot of conversations in the freelance game journal network, which is a Facebook uh, page of a bunch. I, of- I see them and I respect them. Yeah. So I'm often asking what people think is is good pay. Uh, when I was at Variety, essentially the pay was $25 an hour. It sort of fluctuated. I didn't pay an hourly rate. Uh, I paid a set rate for stories, but I based it off of the idea that it was about $25 an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with what I want to do, I would launch leaning very heavily on freelancers and in short order, try to hire one or two of those over the course of the year. Um, so I have built into my budget, the idea that a freelancer would convert to a full-time employee. And I have built into my budget that a full-time employee would in a year or two be up for a a raise. Um, one of the things I've noticed, uh, when working at other sites, uh, other companies is that, uh, when they work out budgets, they often will work out budgets for like five years or, you know, some length of time and they never include raises. And it always is like, I've always been like, so how does that work? <laughs> like, do you expect people to work at the same job for the rest of their lives and never get a raise? Like, it's such a, and, and I really think, I mentioned this in a conversation I was actually having on that network. I really think it's more about people just not thinking. Like, I, and it's not just that it's somebody else. A lot of those budgets don't include raises for the person putting the budget together too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, obviously, whether it's done with ill intention or because you just forgot about it, it doesn't matter when you get the money and you find out you don't have enough money to give people raises. Um, so yeah, I, my idea is uh, to start off with a lot of freelancers, hopefully convert some of those to full-time employees, make sure I have within my budget, the ability to uh, give adequate raises. Uh, but you know, the reality is if this works, if I succeed for the first few years, it's not going to be a place that offers, for instance, health benefits. Like I'm mm-hmm. not going to have health I'll have to pay for my own. Um, uh, so uh, I, I think um, with very few exceptions, if you're trying to start something today, certainly a, a, a publication, the likelihood of offering a full suite of benefits is pretty unlikely. Um, but, you know, vacation time and stuff like that is doable. But uh, yeah, so uh, freelancers, the short answer is I think freelancers are incredibly important. Um, but I also think that it behooves people who rely on freelancers to keep them in mind when positions open. Uh, because I think all too often uh, freelancers are seen as a stopgap and and viewed as a certain type of employee and someone you wouldn't hire, just someone you would use to kind of get past that hard part of mm-hmm. whatever you're doing. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh insider baseball talk about the the state of internships i feel like in games media too i i myself am the product of a of a game informer internship program i know cbsi has one uh and uh 
there's a multitude elsewhere, uh, paid or unpaid. It depends on who you hit up. But I always thought that, hey, there's a problem here with your program if those interns aren't, I guess, within a year after they leave you, if you haven't, if they aren't good enough for you to hire them, what did what did they do with their time at your site? And it, it might be different if you're like hiring for a managing editor. Of course, you want someone with, you know, a decade of industry experience if you can help it. But uh, if you're hiring an associate editor or uh, some something similarly entry level tier, uh, why why bother having this program if you aren't confident in your own uh, uh, educational skills that those people would be the right fit for that job later on? Thankfully, I haven't found too many examples of that, um, but it is it is something I've seen a couple of times and just wondered about. And uh, so generally, too, what we talked a bit about this before, and I think we'll we'll wrap up here with this. The opinions of business leaders uh, in media, whether it's games industry or not, we all know. Uh, you know, Jeff Bezos owns Washington Post. Um, there are a multitude of corporate or just general business interests uh, uh, behind the scenes at these institutions of free speech. What kinds of things do you have to consider and and guard yourself against uh, when you're talking to business leaders who may have a very different conception of of what media should look like? Uh, so, in terms of like uh, the impact that they might have or the influence they might wield if they uh, invest in a publication, certainly that, and also uh, their their general opinion of of games and geek media, yeah. So for the first uh, question, um, I'm I'm very clearly telling everybody that I talk to that they won't have any impact because yeah. <laughs> they won't take their money if that's what they want. Um, I also am making sure that <clears throat> we have it fluctuates, but I would never sell more than forty nine percent of whatever I'm trying to start, so I can ensure that that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that doesn't say that someone can't come to me and say, "Hey, you're spending way too much money." But if someone's like, hey, you really shouldn't write this negative story about such and such, I'll just completely ignore them. Um, I, I think that uh, the reality is um, in, in media, for media to succeed, for a publication to succeed, it has to be a publication built on the merits of journalism. And what that means is that you're serving your audience, not the people who pay the bills. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people who pay the bills, the ones who are looking that we're talking to all understand that. It's not something that's even come up. Um, so uh, that, that's that's sort of that part of it. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the other part of your question? Just uh, you already talked about it a little bit, but the, the general opinion of games media and, and working to ensure that the, the powers that be understand how important games uh, media coverage is. Oh, well, so yeah, it, for me... With the pitch I have, since I am pitching only a publication that only covers games, it sort of filters out a lot of those conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people who aren't interested in something like that would probably, uh, at least I'm, I'm just thinking back at the people we've, we've spoken to via email or in person, I don't think any of them have gotten to the stage where we've even had a serious conversation. Um, like they have to understand the importance and value of uh, publication covering video games and that it's not, you know, a geeky thing. It's not a kid's thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and like I said, it has not been, it doesn't feel like it has been a hindrance at all. If, if anything, it's been one of the things that has attracted attention. Um, the, the real, the real challenge is finding that mix of people who, uh, you know, basically the sort of return they expect because there are people expect really big returns on investment, uh, no matter what they're investing in. Did you have any thoughts about internships uh, broadly? Yeah. So I, I, I have pretty strong feelings about that as someone who also, uh, had an internship, I actually had a PR internship, funny enough. Okay. When I was in college. Yeah. And, uh, I had, it was the worst job ever. Uh, I was, <laughs> I was asked to do things that were very dangerous, <laughs> We're like having me go into really, uh, really sort of criminal areas where there are drug deal dealers and like just bad parts of town. And oh my god, <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was a terrible, terrible internship. And they they don't tell you about uh, that in the one one classes, man. <laughs> no, it was just a, it was a bad job. Um, and it, I learned nothing. It was like uh, one step up from making coffee for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that informed my approach when I was at Kotaku. We did internships. I had two two uh, ways that we would do internships. Uh, one was for pay, and the other was if you were in college and if you could get actual credit, school credit for taking the internship, then I would do it. Um, and I ended up having a number of people go through it uh, through the program that way. Uh, and and that's very different than just saying, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna have an internship." This was like a real internship where we had to be we had to be affiliated with a university. Mm-hmm. I had to fill out paperwork. I had to grade the student. We had to have regular meetings and assignments, uh, and it's, it was a lot more work for me, but also way more gratifying, at least for me, to feel like I was uh, to your point, like helping to form or teach or inform this person who was going through the program. Um, in that case. I, I would tell them straight up from the beginning, you, you know, this is not an internship I'm doing that would turn into a job. It, so if you if that's what you want, don't do this. Mm-hmm. But it's an internship where I hope you will learn to be a better reporter, where, where you will get classroom credit for it. And if you do a great job, I'll absolutely do my best to see if I can, you know, either be a uh, someone who references you or maybe put you in touch with someone. Mm. Um, and, and I thought that worked really well. And I think that's a, a fine way to do things, but, uh, and, and you're right. I think it has gotten better, but there had, there was a time when there were a lot of internships and I'm using air quotes here, which were basically come work for us for free and, uh, you're not going to get anything out of it. And sometimes we're going to keep re-upping your internship and you'll be an intern for us for like three years. Right. That's, that's absurd. I, I think hopefully games media is in a place where, most of us have now put in enough of our own freelance to full-time grind uh, that we understand that like, hey, if we're going to drag some poor kid in here, let's make sure that they uh, get something meaningful out of this. And honestly, yeah, that good on you. That's that's all any intern can hope for out of an internship, especially one in such a niche market where you know it's hard enough to get a, a full-time job itself. So, uh, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the 1099. I, I really appreciate you giving us a window into all of this. Um, I suppose we'll leave off with if you could tell someone who themselves is in a position like yours, big or small, uh, w- what do you hope that they get away from a conversation like this uh, going forward with their own uh, ideas and hopes? If you are looking to do a startup, if you are hoping to pitch something where you're getting money from folks, uh, cast a very, very broad net. 
just understand that you're going to get 90% rejections mm-hmm. and do your best not to take any of it personally. And finally, set a deadline because I think if you don't set a deadline, it could just drag on forever. And I, I think it's not fair to anybody. Well, Brian, good luck with everything. And I, I hope that in time we see something really meaningful out of all the work that you've put into this. And uh, I really appreciate all of your expertise and input. And folks, every Monday, you can find a new episode of the 1099 here on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and elsewhere. Brian, thank you again. Thank you.